Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27? If you're new with us, we have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves in chapter 27, the day that our Lord was crucified. Now, to get a little bit of a running start at today's study, let's back up to verse 27, where it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had gone to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So cruel and barbaric was crucifixion that Rome forbid its own citizens from being crucified no matter what they had done. In fact, so abhorrent was even the mention of crucifixion that it was taboo as a topic of polite social conversation. One author said, and I quote, We have yet to see an accurate full depiction of crucifixion in modern media. If it were ever made, it would be limited to adult audiences because of its intense horror and brutality. It's interesting that none of the gospel writers actually focus on the details of the crucifixion. Matthew simply says in verse 35, then they crucified him. I think this is due in part to the fact that the Holy Spirit did not want to sensationalize this. But also, I think to a large degree, it was because everyone in Matthew's day knew full well what crucifixion was all about. There was no need to, to emphasize the obvious. However, what was obvious to them in Matthew's day is completely obscured to us in our day. So let me talk a little bit about crucifixion. Crucifixion was originally invented by the Persians. Historian William Barclay said, and I quote, it originated in Persia, and its origin came from the fact that the earth was considered to be sacred to Ormuzd, the god. And the criminal was lifted up from the earth that he might not defile the earth, which was the god's property. So originally this form of death was created to lift the person up off the earth so as not to defile the earth, which was the Persian god Ormuzd territory. He owned it. And that's how it began. Now, even though the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, they were the ones that perfected it as one of the cruelest forms of execution imaginable, designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. In fact, so painful was crucifixion. They actually had to develop or invent a word to describe the pain. We get our word excruciating from the Latin word that means out of the cross, or in other words, the pain due to the cross, excruciating. 
They had to invent a, a word to describe the suffering that someone endured who was crucified. Now, New Testament crucifixions would involve the condemned criminal carrying his cross to the place where the crucifixion would take place. In Jesus' case, it was Golgotha. And in Jesus' case, when he got to Golgotha, the cross was laid on the ground, and he himself was made to lay on top of it. And then they would take a large nail and drive it through his feet into the uh, vertical beam. And then they would stretch his hands out over the horizontal beam, and they would nail his hands to the cross in the wrist area just above the hands with just enough bend in the arms to give him the ability to pull himself up from the nails in his hands and to push himself up on the nail in his feet. And I'll explain why he would need to do that in a moment. But the cross was then picked up after they nailed Jesus securely to it, and it was dropped into a hole with a thud, causing excruciating pain as the full weight of Jesus' body was now being held on the cross by the nails in his hands and feet. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar describes crucifixion as follows. He said, and I quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly dizziness, the cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would have given the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins, the crushed tendons, throb with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened if the victim took several days to die, which they often did, if you can imagine that. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. While each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the unknown enemy, at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite relief. In other words, it was so painful that people just longed to die as just a release from the agony. One thing is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him. And it is important that we understand this, for it helps to realize the agony of Christ's death, end quote. In an article that appeared in the Arizona Medical Journal, written by Dr. Truman Davis, entitled, The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, he adds some additional insights into what Jesus would have endured while dying on that cross. He said, and I'm quoting him, at this point another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath 
Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Eventually, uh, a, a person on the cross would die of, of asphyxiation because they couldn't breathe. And what happened was they would only be able to push and pull themselves up on their nails so long to take breaths in and out and then slump down until the next breath. And after a while, you just couldn't do it anymore and they would die of suffocation. He goes on to say, hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air, and then, of course, death comes. It is important to remember that Jesus Christ was no victim here, as some try to say. He affirmed this in John's Gospel when he said, No one takes my life from me by force. I lay it down for the sheep of my own will. In verse 33 of Matthew 27, we read, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. Let me stop there. The Latin word for Golgotha is Calvary. Both mean a place of a skull. And some interpret that to mean that Jesus Christ was crucified in a kind of a burial ground or a cemetery because it was called the place of a skull, which means it must have been a cemetery with a lot of dead bodies and therefore a lot of skulls laying around. Absolutely not. Uh, cemeteries were located way outside of town in those days. Cemeteries were defiling places, especially for the Jews. So they didn't put a cemetery in town. And the Romans would always crucify somebody either inside a town or, in this case, outside the walls of Jerusalem, but on a main road. They always crucified criminals on main roads because they wanted maximum shame. They wanted people to be able to walk by, see these guys, be able to mock them, spit on them, and so on, right there. So Jesus Christ was not crucified in some plot of ground that was used for a cemetery. He was crucified uh, at a place where there was a main road, but a place that was called place of a skull. They say, well, well, what does that mean then, if it wasn't a cemetery? Well, there is a hill right outside the gates of Jerusalem, a place where they believe they have found the garden tomb. It was discovered in 1885 by a very godly man named General Gordon. We'll talk more about that next time. But they claim to have found this tomb where Jesus was buried. Uh, I have been there to Gordon's Calvary. And uh, before you actually go into the garden area where the tomb was located, uh, the, you're sitting on a platform uh, where the guide is talking about the area. And uh, behind the guide's back, uh, you see uh, a, a hill. And in the hill, there's a cave. And you can see very clearly the image of a skull. Uh, in the rock formation in the cave area. You can go online and, and Google Gordon's Calvary. You can see what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, the, it's not a place of skulls, like a cemetery. It's place of a skull because the cave that is right by the tomb looks like a skull. You can see that for yourself, as I said. Now, as we study the crucifixion in all four of the Gospels, primarily Matthew's Gospel, since that's what we're studying, uh, six main 
aspects or events emerge that all four gospel writers talk about. There were other, some other side issues that happened that uh, were not the main things because the gospel writers don't all talk about them, but there were six specific uh, main aspects of what happened to Jesus at the crucifixion that I want to bring out this morning. Number one, they gave Jesus sour wine mixed with gall to drink, verse 34 tells us. Now, all four gospel writers make reference to this, but it's likely that it was two separate acts that were involved here. What do I mean? Well, Matthew and Mark describe what Jewish sources say was customarily done by wealthy women living in Jerusalem. They would be, It was a kind of a ministry for them because crucifixion was so ridiculously painful. Uh, some wealthy women banded together, and what history tells us is they would actually go to the criminal uh, as they were being crucified, as they were first crucified, and they would give to the criminal wine mixed with gall, which was a narcotic that would stupefy the criminal, would, would dull the senses to make crucifixion a little more bearable. Now, it seems to say in Matthew's gospel that they came to Jesus at the beginning of the crucifixion to give him this wine mixed with gall. This would be consistent with this ministry of these women. All right, But John tells us, and we see here, that Jesus refused to drink it because he didn't want his senses dull. He wanted to keep his mind clear, presumably to experience the fullness of his suffering. However, John, in his gospel, he seems to refer to something that took place at the end of the crucifixion. Because John records that at one point, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, actually, that was in fulfillment of something the psalmist said in Psalm 69, verse 21. But when Jesus said, I am thirsty, and crucifixion would, would elicit a burning, raging thirst. So that would have been consistent with what he was enduring. But when he said, I am thirsty from the cross, some of the soldiers took a sponge and dipped it in sour wine, put it on a reed or a rod, lifted it up to Jesus' mouth. He tasted it, didn't drink it really, but tasted it, and then said, not long after that, it is finished, and gave up his spirit and died. So one event seems to have taken place at the beginning of the crucifixion, the women offering him the wine mixed with gall, and then, of course, at the end, Right before he dismissed the spirit, the soldiers dipped a sponge in sour wine and put it up to his mouth to drink. And again, does it make a difference? Not really. But if we're studying this, we need to try to understand the events that took place that day. All right. So that was number one. Number two, we see how the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothing in verse 35. When they had crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, when it says at the beginning of verse 35, then they crucified him, it doesn't mean that the crucifixion was over, but simply that the cross had been dropped into that hole we spoke about that allowed it to stand up right now. In fact, guys, this is where the crucifixion technically began. But it says they divided his garments, casting lots. Now, again, each of the Gospels talk about this, but John gives us a little more detail. Jesus was apparently wearing an inner garment that was closest to his body, and then outwardly he was wearing a robe, a seamless robe, okay, made from one piece of cloth. They stripped him of his clothing, took the inner garment, and divided it up, and they were allowed to do this. Uh, Rome didn't care. I mean, it was part of the compensation the soldiers got. They could uh, take from the prisoners whatever they had on their body when they were crucified. So they stripped him, took the inner garment, cut it in four pieces, gave a piece to each of the soldiers. But the outer robe was seamless, 
No doubt somebody had given this robe to Jesus. It was woven of one piece from top to bottom. And in that culture, this was an expensive piece of clothing. And they didn't want to cut it to pieces and divide it up. So they said, look, hey, this is an expensive piece of clothing. Let's not cut it. Let's cast lots for it. And, of course, this fulfilled a prophecy that um, Matthew and John tell us to fulfill prophecy. They don't tell us which prophecy. We know it was, was the Psalm 22, verse 18, where David prophesying, actually Jesus prophesying through David, a thousand years before the crucifixion said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now let me just say this. I have heard word of faith teachers who are you know, always talking about how God wants us wealthy and so on. I have heard word of faith teachers use this to say, look, Jesus wore this expensive robe. It was actually designer clothes, okay? And that proves Jesus was wealthy. It proves that he wore designer clothes, which means he wants you wealthy. He wants you to have designer clothes as well. It's an abomination to think that way, that Jesus died, the death he died, simply that I could have designer clothes and drive a nice car, live in a big house. It's the height of blasphemy. Number three, were the written charges against Jesus. We read in verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him. That would be the soldiers, of course. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. That was common for Rome to write on a placard the accusation against the criminal. Uh, it was just the way they did it. And so they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, all four Gospels, again, record this, but they actually vary the wording on the placard. And some people have had a problem with this, like the Bible's contradicting itself. See, Matthew states, the placard said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark writes, the placard said, the king of the Jews. Luke reports the words as, this is the king of the Jews. And John, who was the fullest version, writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written on that placard. Is that going to be cause for us to dismiss the Bible as God's word because the, the writers of the Gospels didn't exactly write the exact words? They were just trying to communicate the essence of what was being said. They weren't trying to give us an exact point-by-point -point account. And listen to me. If your Bibles would have had the Gospels word for word each one, it would have implied collusion, and that would have dismissed the, the inspiration of the Bible. And that's all they were doing, just writing uh, the essence of what the charges were against Jesus that day. Now, John probably recorded the full charge, ordered by Pilate to be written and placed on the cross, and that angered the Jewish leaders. Turn to John 19 for a minute. In John 19, starting in verse 20, we read, Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, yes, outside the walls, but on a main street, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Why? You know, why these three languages? Well, because there was a lot of people walking around. That's how the Romans did it. They wanted to crucify criminals in a very crowded place so that people would look at this and go, wow, I don't ever want to do anything to cross the Roman government. And they wanted to write the accusation in three languages, the most common of the day, in Hebrew, because it was in, outside the walls of Jerusalem, a lot of Jews, in Greek. Okay, a lot of Greek-speaking people lived in the area. Uh, and always merchants coming and going, and then Latin, which was the Roman language. So they wrote this accusation in all three of these languages, verse 21. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am the king of the Jews. 
And what did Pilate answer in verse 22? What I have written, I have written. See, he was a little upset, okay, if I could put it that way. Uh, he was tired of being bullied by the Jewish leadership who had forced him into crucifying an innocent man, which nobody forced Pilate to do anything. As we saw last week, he crucified Christ of his own free will, but he didn't feel guilty about it. He knew Jesus was an innocent man. But at this point, this was his last little jab at the Jewish leaders who had pushed him into doing something he didn't want to do. And so he thought, okay, fine. You told me the charge was he claims to be the king of the Jews. I'll put Jesus, the king of the Jews, up there. Well, don't say he is the king of the Jews, they said to him. Say he says he's the king of the Jews. No, no, no. What I've written, I've written. That's it. Okay? Take, take a hike, basically, what he was saying to these guys, all right? Well, number four, then we see how Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Verse 38, then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. Now, once again, each of the four Gospels reports that two others were crucified with Jesus, one on either side of him on the day he was crucified, although only Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that they were called robbers. And only Luke tells us that Jesus and one of the thieves had a brief conversation that resulted in that thief's conversion. But here's the thing. The word robber there is the same word that was used to describe Barabbas. Uh, same Greek word. Barabbas was more than a robber. He was an insurrectionist, a rebel, a murderer, and a robber. And so that word probably means more than just robber or thief when it comes to these two men. In fact, commentator Jim Boyce gives some insight into this I never thought about. I think you'll find it interesting. He said, and I quote, The word refers to what we would call a guerrilla soldier or revolutionary and probably suggests that those who were crucified along with Jesus were Barabbas's companions. This is more than likely because stealing was not a capital offense back in those days. Was Barabbas intended for the cross in the center? Probably. If so, Jesus literally took his place. Just as in a figurative sense, he took the place of all who believe on him and trust him alone for their salvation. Remember now, Barabbas was supposed to be executed that day. Of course, Pilate wanted to release Jesus, put Barabbas to death. The crowd wouldn't have that, and so he let Barabbas go. Probably used the cross intended for Barabbas to crucify Jesus. Interesting. Luke records the scene this way between Jesus and this one thief or insurrectionist. Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now apparently this one, and the Gospels tell us that initially they both began to mock Jesus. But then one of the criminals had a change of heart. And he says to his buddy, he says, look, knock it off. I mean, don't you even fear God? Look, we deserve what we're getting, okay? We deserve this punishment. But this man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to die. Apparently, this criminal had heard of the ministry of Jesus, had known who he was. 
And at this point, he says to his friend, look, we deserve to die. This man has done nothing wrong. He turns to Jesus and says, you know, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know if you realize what a blessing this conversation, this conversion has been over the centuries to thousands of people who thought it was too late in their lives to get their life right with God by receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Of course, the devil wants to always tell you it's too late. The devil wants to always say, look, do you think God wants anything to do with you now after all these years that you've lived such a terrible life? The devil is always wanting to tell us it's too late, okay? You've lived a rotten life. It's too late to turn things around. But this incident here, this conversion of this one criminal on the cross while he was only hours from death, I, I think has been a tremendous blessing to untold thousands over the centuries because it teaches us that it's never too late to accept Christ, that God even accepts what we would call deathbed conversions. As long as you have a breath left in your body, you can use it to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me for my sins. I receive you as my Savior. And you can know that when you close your eyes in death, you will open them in glory because it's never too late. Now, at this point, guys, we can't help but remember another prophecy that was fulfilled. And I said that I said last week that I think there was like 32 or 33 prophecies that were fulfilled the very day Jesus died. And this was to reassure us, everyone, that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. The Jewish people doubted that. They, they, they doubted that after a while. We'll see why in a moment. But it was God's way of saying, no, 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 this is the Messiah I promised. Why? Because he is fulfilling one prophecy after another on the day of his crucifixion. At this point that we remember a prophecy that was spoken of in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, number five, another major thing that happened the day that Jesus was crucified is the insults directed at Jesus from those who passed by. Verse 39, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Most, if not all, of these mockers were probably Jews from the area or pilgrims from out of town that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And because the city couldn't accommodate all of these pilgrims, all of these travelers around these major feast days would come into the city to observe Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles and so on. Because the city of Jerusalem couldn't accommodate all of these travelers, many of them would have to find lodging outside the city in nearby towns and villages, which meant there was a higher volume than usual of foot traffic coming in and out of the city at all times of the day and night. So that when Jesus was crucified, you had maximum foot traffic. And a lot of these people were pilgrims and many who lived in the area. The tragic thing about it is that four days earlier, some of these very people were shouting Hosanna to him as he was riding that donkey up the Mount of Olives. They believed him to be the Messiah. That was a, from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And the word Hosanna literally means save now. And they were crying out to him, save us now, you're the Messiah. Save us from Roman oppression. Bring the kingdom in. 
how sad they were so fickle that four days later they're crying crucify him on the morning he was killed. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, I think one author gives a good explanation for their fickle flip-flop. He said, and I quote, although they were grateful for his miracles and awed by his preaching, they had no desire for him to cleanse them of their cherished sins or give him control of their lives. They had expected him to be their kind of Messiah, a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and establish Israel as a sovereign over the Gentile world. The fact that he allowed himself to be arrested, mocked, beaten, scourged, and tried before a pagan leader like Pilate, while offering no verbal, much less miraculous defense, was proof enough in their minds that he was not the Messiah whom they and most of Israel wanted and expected, end quote. And because of it, even though some might have even called themselves at one point his disciples, I think some of these people at one point had actually followed Jesus' ministry. In fact, we read in John 6 how a whole group of them turned away and followed him no more of his disciples because he wasn't acting like a Messiah. He was talking about loving their enemies, you know, forgiving those people that hurt them. And uh, that didn't sound like a revolutionary talking. And you know how people are. You know, when they hitch their wagon to your star and they think you're going to take them somewhere good, then you let them down. Um, They don't like that. They don't like that. And so a lot of these people, I think, could have been disciples at one time, but they felt now betrayed. They were let down. Uh, They were robbed of their hopes of kingdom glory. And so they turned on Jesus with a vicious hatred and mocked him while he hung on that cross. In fact, the Greek indicates theirs was a continuous barrage of vile defamations being hurled constantly at him. They didn't just pass by and, and throw a couple jabs at him. They stood there and mocked him incessantly. And also to emphasize their disdain for him, even more, they wagged their heads at him in mockery. They wagged their heads at him. The wagging of the head is something that God condemns. In fact, in the book of Psalms, uh, the psalmist said, all those who wag the head, God will judge. You know, wag the head, you know, you know. It's one of those things where it's a, it's a sign of pride and uh, arrogance. And what did they, they wagged their head and they insulted, they mocked him. What did they say? They said, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Now, this was a misinterpretation of something that Jesus had said earlier. In fact, in John chapter 2, it's recorded for us that Jesus told the Jewish leaders, if you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up again. Well, John, writing 60 years after the fact, says this, he wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the building that had taken 46 or 47 years to build. He was talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up through the resurrection. But of course, your enemies don't need their facts straight. They just want to find anything they can use against you. And so they heard that Jesus said he was going to destroy this temple. Three days I'll raise it up. Oh, yeah, he's, he's crazy, you know. He, he, he said he'll destroy Herod's temple and in three days raise it up again. That's ridiculous. He's out of his mind kind of a thing. So they mocked him. They mocked him. But David had prophesied about this very thing a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22, verse 7, where he said, All those who see me ridicule me. Now, I say David prophesied, but Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, was prophesying through David as if Jesus was speaking directly through David. And those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Now, as I said earlier, the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus of his clothing. 
And criminals back then were often crucified naked to enhance their shame. I want you to think for a second. We've already talked about it briefly. But I want you to think for a second about what the Son of God endured to purchase our salvation. We know that the day began with him being beaten by the temple guards in the house of Caiaphas. And then he was taken to Pilate, who eventually scourged him. He was beaten again by the Roman soldiers, stripped naked, crucified, spit upon, mocked some more before dying, all at the hands of those that he came to save. Let me say this to you. Don't blame the Jews, first of all, for killing Jesus or the Romans. You know, around the spring, a lot of churches and even uh, theaters will put on passion plays, passion plays which are designed to reenact this event of Jesus' crucifixion. Do you realize that Passion Play started as a way to incite hatred against the Jewish people? That uh, they believed, the church believed, was responsible for Jesus' death? So Passion Plays were designed to incite hatred towards the Jews. Look at what they did to our Lord. They killed our Lord. We need to kill them. Anti-Semitism really arose uh, to a large degree in the ancient world because of passion place. That's why you should never invite a Jewish unsaved person to a passion place. You think you're doing something good. You have innocent motives. You just want them to see what Jesus endured for them. They will interpret that as an insult because in the history of the Jewish people, passion plays were used to incite anti-Semitism. So pray about that, okay? But look, don't blame the Jews or the Romans for killing Jesus. We all put Jesus on that cross. We all put Jesus on that cross, a cross he accepted willingly. Listen, it wasn't the nails that pinned Jesus to that cross. It was love. Don't ever forget that. It was his great love for all of us. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5? He said, if you ever doubt God's love for you, just look at the cross. Because before we were children of God, while we were yet sinners, active sinners, Jesus died for all of us. And if he died for those who were sinners, how much more is he going to love those who are his children? So if you ever come to a place where the devil, and he's always going to try to tell you how terrible a Christian you are, how much that God God doesn't love you anymore, because you just keep blowing it. If the devil ever whispers that in your ear, just look at the cross. Because it forever should silence the condemnation of the devil. Because Jesus Christ loved me so much that while I was a sinner, okay, I mean, obviously, he died long before I lived. But the idea is that while we were yet sinners, he died for us to show us how much he loved us. And if he showed us how much he loved us while we were yet the enemies of God, how much more is he going to love us in other words? Children, even if we do blow it, because we are going to blow it. And so the crowd mocked, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Could Jesus have come down from that cross anytime he had wanted to? Anytime he wanted to, he could have called to his Father, who would have sent immediately 12 legions of angels, no doubt. That's 72,000 angels to rescue the Son from the cross. If he had done that, if he had rescued himself, we could not have been rescued. We could not have been saved. Jesus took that pain and suffering because, again, he loved us. He could have been spared at any time, but he hung there not because he couldn't get down, because he wouldn't get down from the cross. 
You see, the clueless crowd had no idea what they were saying. They were truly speaking out of the mouth of Satan, who continues to tell every Christian who seeks to get serious about God, who seeks to be like Jesus, who seeks to be crucified with Christ every day. The devil will always try to tell you through somebody in your family or a co-worker, somebody who claims to be a Christian, but, you know, looks at your life and how you're denying yourself to live for Jesus, they're going to mock that and say, come down from the cross. You don't have to be a fanatic. I love Jesus. I still want go out partying and drinking, and my boyfriend and I or my girlfriend and I, we, live, we love each other. We love God. Why, why do you have to, you know, deny yourself all these things? You can love God and still have fun. Come down from the cross. And today we have many voices telling us that we can have Jesus and the world. The Bible says it's either Jesus or the world. And you have to choose which one you're going you're to follow. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve me and the world, Jesus said. You've got to be like Joshua and say, choose this day whom you're going to serve. That's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And number six, the last thing we see that happened that day that the gospel writers record is the mocking chief priests, scribes, and elders. In verse 41 we read, Likewise the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, if you ask a Jewish person to this day, why they don't believe that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. They will tell you two things. First of all, if he was the Messiah, our leaders back then would have known it. Think again. And number two, you Christians claim that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't believe our Messiah is going to be the Son of God. We believe he's going to be a man like Moses was a man because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that God was going to raise up a deliverer like unto me. And so they focus on, the, on Moses being a man and say, well, Messiah is going to be a man. What Moses was actually saying is he's going to be a deliverer. That's the key word. Where I have been used by God, God to deliver you from Egypt, he's going to be used by God to deliver you from your sins. Genesis 3.15. So the Jewish people don't believe that Jesus is a Messiah for those two reasons. But these men made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council the very group that had Jesus arrested, tried, and condemned. And they challenged him to have God, the Father, deliver him if he was truly the Son of God and the King of Israel. Again, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 8, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And what did they say? They also said to him, Come down from the cross, and we will believe. And there are those today saying that Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from sin. It doesn't make sense to have an innocent man killed for a guilty party. He actually died on the cross just to give us a great example of servanthood. And these folks deny, and they're very popular, many of them today, they deny penal substitution. Penal means punishment. Substitution means that another was punished in my place. That is the very heart of the gospel message. The very heart of the gospel message. To deny it is to deny the gospel. 
But let me just finish by saying this, okay? And I, I want to just quote one more time author Jim Boyce, and then we'll just wrap this up, okay? He said, and I quote, that is the straightforward account of the crucifixion in Matthew's gospel is what he's talking about. That's the straightforward account. But this is where we have to stop and go back over it in our mind, remembering what Jesus did for us. Can we imagine it? Perhaps we can think of a lacerated body bleeding from head to foot. His form is so marred that he is hardly recognizable even to his friends. No representation of Jesus' crucifixion that I have ever seen, even by the greatest of artists, does justice to this horror. They are all too clean, too sterile. The crucifixion was bloody and vulgar, ugly and repulsive. Yet he was the Son of God. Think of that and try to understand something of the horror of your sin and mine, and of the grace, love, mercy, and compassion of our God. Do you understand that it was for you and me? that Jesus endured this, end quote. Well, it all goes along with what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, but he was wounded for whose transgressions? Ours. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's penal substitution. The chastisement for our peace, that we could have peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes, the lashes he endured at the scourging post, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Let me just close by giving you one more quote. This one comes from the great evangelical Anglican bishop, John Ryle. He said, and I quote, Was he scourged? It was that through his stripes we might be healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a malefactor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last, and that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. That's why our Savior died. Let's never forget why he died. It was out of his great love for all of us. And so may God give us grace as we think upon the crucifixion, that we don't rush through the story, that we understand a little bit what he went through and why he did and how necessary it was. Because without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission of sins. If he didn't shed his perfect sinless blood, we could never be allowed to enter heaven someday to live with him. So we thank God for his incredible grace and love. Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your son the innocent, to die for the guilty. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that no one took your life from, me, from you. Who could? You're the Son of God, the, the creator of the world. No man could take your life from you. But, Lord, you gave it freely out of your great love for your sheep. And, Lord, we thank you. And, Lord, give us grace to remember all that you've done for us, that we might be humbled, that we might be silent, 
as we think of the sins that we have committed that put you on that cross. But it was love that held you there. And we just thank you for that, Lord. And we ask that you give us grace that we might live for you every day and seek to be crucified with Christ to die to self that we might live a life that honors and glorifies you, Lord. How can anyone ever say, don't be a fanatic? (laughs) How can we be anything but a fanatic when it comes to our Savior? Because unless we're all in, unless we have a holy obsession to live for him out of love, we don't deserve him. We don't deserve you, Lord. So give us that love for you, the all-consuming love that would seek to die to self every day, to take up our cross, to follow in your footsteps, that we might make a difference in this world for you. Father, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.